get the feeling that everything in America is completely fucked up? You know that feeling that the whole country is like one inch away from saying, that's it, forget it. Well, think about it. Everything's polluted. The environment, the government, the schools, you name it. Speaking of schools, I was uh, walking the Howard Halls the other day and I asked myself, is there life after high school? Because I can't face tomorrow, let alone a whole year of this shit. Yeah, you got it, folks. It's me again with a little attitude for all you out here in white bread land. For all you nice people living in the middle of America, the beautiful. Let's see, we're on uh, 92 FM tonight, and it feels like a nice, clean little band so far. No one else is using it, and the price is right. <laughs> and yes, folks, you guessed it. Tonight, I'm as horny as a 10-pecker to house, so stay tuned because this is a hard hairy reminding you to... Eat your cereal with a fork and do your homework in the dark. Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 119. Talk hard. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows. The war is over, everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor, the rich get rich. That's how it goes. Everybody Hello and welcome to episode 119 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. So last episode, I examined Generation X, the generation, the pop culture, and its past and present. This time around, I'm staying with that generation and examining one of the more seminal films of our collective coming of age, which is Pump Up the Volume. This Christian Slater movie from 1990 is a cult classic and in a way helped predict aspects of our current culture, especially, well, podcasts. And I won't be alone to do this. I'll be joined by podcasting's own Michael Bailey to talk about the film and its influence. And you'll hear that conversation right after this so stick around night or two everybody knows you've been discreet but there were so many people you just had to meet without your clothes and everybody everyone, Michael Bailey here with a brand spanking new trailer for From Crisis to Crisis. I'm here too! I, I, I know you're here, Jeff. I just wanted to make that clear. It, it, it's, it's clear, Jeff. This Good. Time. Anyway, 
Ten years ago, we began our quest to cover just about every post-crisis on Infinite Earth's Superman comic, going from Man of Steel number one in 1986 all the way to Adventures of Superman number 649 in 2006. Now it's 2020, and we're heading into the Superman books with the cover date of 1996, which means we're about halfway through our mandate. Which was only supposed to take five years. Anyway, 1996 is going to be a huge year for the show. And we're going to have a lot of great stuff to talk about. Like Lois and Clark breaking their engagement. I'm not sure I would call that great, but yes, it does indeed happen. Then, the real return of Lex Luthor, an old flame of Clark's, reveals that she's not dead. Lois leaves Metropolis. Something bad happens to Perry White. Clark gets a promotion. And then there's Final Night. And we're going to end the year with a wedding and a honeymoon. Plus, we're still covering the Superman family books. So, so happy that we won't be dealing with Titans or Outsiders anymore. And we get a new Supergirl title, a new Justice League title, and even a Superboy team book involving a rave. Yeah, because, you know, raves and stuff. I'll be sure to bring my pacifier and my glow sticks. From Crisis to Crisis is part of the Fortress of Baileytude podcasting network located at www.fortressofbaileytude.com. You can find all of the back episodes of the series at that site, plus the other shows on the network. From Crisis to Crisis is also available through Apple Podcasts app, the Google Play Store, and you can stream us on Spotify. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Think about it. a decade where there's nothing to look forward to and no one to look up to. He's got a pirate radio station. Nobody knows who he is. I, I could be that anonymous nerd sitting across from you and when you turn around and he just looks away. He never looks back at you again. This is a song for the 90s. Welcome to Dorina Central. May I take your order, please? Yeah, I want... That was deep. I like the idea that a voice can just go somewhere uninvited. Like a dirty thought in a nice, clean mind. I know you. Not your name, but your game. Come to me, or I'll come to you. So you are him. is the whole problem. Are we going to allow this guy to be heard by anyone who can turn a dial? I'm in jail! I'm gonna stay here! Mm. I like it here! <laughs> I'm 
he's trying to tell you that there's something wrong with this school. Hey, you're not hey, caught what, you being. What do you want to slam me? Come on, Bill, I'm a big fan of yours. Get out, get out. It's out of control. Why not do something crazy? It makes a hell of a lot more sense than blowing your brains out. FCC, you know what that means? This phone call has been traced. This is my life you're screwing around with here, you know? Not anymore, it isn't. This is everyone's life. Mark, you can't leave it like this. You out there? You listening? And I'm back with uh, the main feature of this episode. Um, I've got my Diet Cherry Pepsi, I've got my Blackjack Gum, and I have my guest who um, is a podcaster in his own right, one of the, the podcasters out there. Uh, somebody who I honestly first thought of when I wanted to do this episode. Take cover, Arizona. It's time for Michael Bailey. I've got that old that feeling, Tom, that old familiar feeling that something rank is going down. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. <laughs> No, thank you so much. Oh, I, I, I was really excited when you suggested this because uh, I used to think I had thoughts about this film, and now after I've rewatched it for the first time in probably two decades, uh, I really have thoughts about this film. <laughs> yeah, it, it's one of those movies because um, you and I were around – we were both um, either on the cusp of – we're both on the cusp of high school because if if I recall correctly, you went to a junior high school, mm -hmm, yeah, uh, and not a middle school. So you went to ninth grade in the junior high school, and had my school district stayed in that type of formation, I would have been um, in the same boat. It's just that my school district, when I was in the ninth grade, decided to move the ninth grade to the high school. So I spent two years in junior high and four years in high school, but so I was in eighth grade. When this dropped, if I'm recalling correctly, and you would have been in mm -hmm. ninth. Yeah, I would have. When it came out, probably when we wa when I first watched it, I was actually in the tenth grade. Uh, yeah. So, but yeah, it's it's funny that you mentioned that because it's just so weird to think that it's just like okay, so we're gonna have kindergarten through third, fourth through sixth, seventh through ninth, tenth through twelfth. That's mm -hmm. a weird way to divide up children. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But the, what's interesting is that, like, you know, um, this movie was was R rated, but it was and it was meant for the later teen years, portraying the later teen years set. But on some level, it was also trying to reach those of us who were about, you know, thirteen, fourteen, and sneaking into R rated movies. And I'm going to put sneaking in air quotes because. We fucking walked up to the box office and bought tickets for R-rated movies all the time, and there were people behind those things who were like, you know, <laughs> counting counting the minutes down to where they could go make out with their girlfriend in the projection room or whatever, <laughs> you know, those types of theaters. Actually, no, the, the, the Tillman 8 in, in Allentown was pretty hardcore about uh, that kind of thing. You had to show your ID, um, mm. which... which, which um, which I I only snuck into one or managed to w w work my way into one, and that oddly enough was my cousin Vinny. Uh, oh, interesting. So, which me and my friend Larry thought was hysterical, and we had to leave halfway through because we were supposed to go see Wayne's World. This dates this story. <laughs> uh, 
and we were meeting, <laughs> meeting up with some people, and we didn't get there in time, and Wayne's World sold out. Uh, because this mm. was a time oh, when I remember when that could happen. sold out. I, I yeah. just, I, I can't, it baffles my mind, uh, that that is a thing, but yeah, I, uh, I didn't have that experience and probably I was too damn, I was such a chicken around that time. I never <laughs> wanted to get in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Oh, I was, I was such a, I, I was a goody goody as well. And, um, so, uh, but, uh, we'll, we'll get into our origin stories about this movie, um, in, in a few minutes. Um, what I'm going to do is go ahead and just talk about, uh, some, you know, background information about it, you know, the things, the, the specifics and stuff. And then we'll, then we'll do origin stories and we'll, we'll talk plot and everything. We have some really interesting things to, to say about this, um, being that we're both in our forties and looking back on a, you know, one of the few teen angst movies that came out in the early nineties, it was kind of a, the early to mid nineties was a dry spell mm-hmm. in some ways for this type of movie. Um, movies featuring teenagers tended toward the younger set, like the tweens. So you had a lot of those, like Christina Ricci was in a few of them and people our age were going to see, you know, your Wayne's world, your Tommy boy, uh, you know, stuff that was a little more adult. And, uh, we were watching the eighties stuff on television because it was rerun endlessly. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you the number of times, I saw the breakfast club edited for television to the point where the, my point where people I went to high school with when it was on, we used to make fun of the edited for television language in it. Just, you know, when we were bored, like study hall and just like shooting the shit and stuff, we were like, would you see the breakfast club last night? It was like, yeah, you forget you, mm-hmm. you know, like in all the, the ways they used to censor the cursing because it was just funny. But yeah, so this was, this was probably, we are talking about pump up the volume, the Christian Slater, uh, 1990, Teen Angst classic. Um, and it was directed by Alan Moyle, whose first feature was Times Square, a film from, I think, 1980. It was the early 1980s, and I was, think it was 1980. I know nothing about that particular film. It's kind of a cult hit. Uh, it, he was supposedly really unhappy about it because of the way that editing was taken out of his hands at one point during the production. And incidentally, his uh, the other film I know him for is Empire Records which would come out in 95. And that is a film that would also be edited against his wishes to the point where they did release a fan remix edition of it on DVD um, a number of years ago. Uh, Moyle got the idea for the film from a classmate in his hometown in Quebec because uh, he grew up just outside of Montreal. And this kid printed an underground newspaper, but he then took his own life. One of the sources that I have for this, um, I, I grabbed some stuff off of Variety. I grabbed some stuff off of IMDb. But there's a really good article from last August, uh, August of 2020, called Talk Hard, The Making of the Teen Angst Classic Pump Up the Volume in The Ringer. And I will link to it in the show notes because it really is worth reading. It's just – it's fascinating. Anyway, so in The Ringer article, he says, I thought, here's a guy, a voice, crying out in the wilderness – but he's more than this town. And so he took the idea to studio exec Sandy Stern, who used to listen to the uh, what was then a liberal talk radio station. This must have been a long time ago, WBAI on Long Island, and saw it, as he said, a force for finding my way out of suburbia and my way into myself as well. So um, with those memories of, of radio and this treatment, according to both Moyle and Stern, uh, Moyle had the treatment 
it was mostly this first two acts. Stern was the one who came up for much of the idea for the third act, although Moyle is the only credited writer on the film. So they get pump up the volume going. Uh, this would become more, one of Christian Slater's more iconic roles, um, although he was not the first one offered the movie, believe it or not. The producers actually approached John Cusack. Cusack had just come off of Say Anything, however, and he turned it down. He was tired of playing teenagers. And I think he was in his early 20s at that point. And it, it tracks with, you know, if you consider, like I said, how kind of dead the genre was getting as it is. Slater took the role. Uh, it would, like I said, it was one of his more iconic ones. Um, it, he had just come off of 1989's Heathers, which is probably his other most well-known role. Not um, Gleaming the Cube? <laughs> No, not Gleaming the Cube, although I knew a bunch of guys in elementary school who loved that movie because they were like they were the ones walking around in like Vision Streetwear, <laughs> you know, with the with the haircut that was like mostly shaved, but that enormous amount of hair that just fell in front of their faces and stuff. This is like sixth grade. Yeah. So um, so those guys. Yeah, um, he would go on to have this. He, he was so he's getting this reputation for being a teen heartthrob. Um, he would do Cuffs. Um, what was the one with Marissa Tomei? Bed of Roses, I think. Yeah, there was like or, two movies around the same and, time of girl falls into with in love with dying guy. Untamed yeah, Heart. That's, that's I think that was him as well. Of. Yeah. And um, I do have to point out, because this is about a guy who is kind of underground, he goes viral, he had starred in, or co-starred in another movie about a person whose kind of cause goes viral, which was 1985's The Legend of Billy Jean. It's a classic, I will hear no, I will brook no arguments on that. Look, Tom, we didn't start this, fair we didn't is fair. it for happen, but we're not going to give up till it's done. Fair is fair. fair. Yes. Um, and uh, I probably should have remembered the episode number, but if you ever want to hear me talk about that, I was a guest on the Forgotten Film cast a few years ago talking about that movie. Um, underrated. Fun as hell. Um, in fact, I think at the end of the episode, I recommended watching this movie. So he, he gets this uh, reputation as a heartthrob. He's a bit of a bad boy, if we even use that phrase anymore. Um, in fact... One interesting piece of trivia about this movie is that um, Slater's character does not drive. At the beginning of the movie, he talks about he doesn't have a license. Well, the reason for that is because Christian Slater had a couple of DUIs on his record and was not legally allowed to drive, even on set. So they wrote that into the film that he just does not have a driver's license. Um, it works, though, right? Yeah. You know, he's just kind of this – for the character he is, it totally works. Anyway – uh, they filmed the movie at Saugus High School in California in 1989, and a few shots here and there you can actually see the school's real name. Um, <laughs> uh, Saugus, unfortunately, by the way, was the site of a school shooting in 2019. Pump Up the Volume was released on August 20th, 1990, ultimately went on to make $11.5 million at the box office, according to Box Office Mojo, and this made it number 97 for 1990, right behind Henry and June which I believe was the first NC-17 film, and just ahead of the Dana Carvey movie Opportunity oh, Knox, God. a movie I rented more. I'm pretty sure I saw that movie more than once on video. Uh, top five for 1990, by the way, something that you and I talked about a few uh, couple months ago um, on views. Uh, Ghost, Pretty Woman, Home Alone, 
Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and The Hunt for Red October. That so. scans. Yeah. Film, though, did go on to have a huge VHS life and has a soundtrack that was also a cult classic, especially since the soundtrack only ever saw it release on cassette and CD, just like the home video release of the film has been in limited capacity. Now, to translate this for the youngs, you can only get Pump Up the Volume on physical media. It is not legally available on streaming. Uh, this is mainly due to music rights. I would imagine the song that would hold it up would probably be the Beastie Boys scenario, yeah. which is used in at one point because that's a Beastie Boys like bootleg, like lost track. Yeah, that's that's like the ultimate deep cut of the uh, of the film too. Um, and up until a week before this, I actually only had it on VHS because on. Uh, because it had a DVD release that was bare bones back in the early 2000s. And then very recently, as of this recording on February 23rd of 2021, Warner Archive dropped a Blu-ray edition. And it's, there's nothing really new on it. It's just a, it's just the film in the trailer. So it's, it's just the bare bones DVD transfer to the Blu-ray. But I do appreciate having a, more updated, uh, version of the film. The, you can't find the, uh, soundtrack and we'll talk about the soundtrack later in the episode you can't find the soundtrack anywhere digitally you would have to buy the physical media however um if you're a spotify subscribe subscriber there are a few people who have assembled the soundtrack into playlists of stuff that's on the cd and stuff that's in the movie but not on the album i'll link to one of those playlists on the show notes as well i've been listening to it on and off over the last few days and so um, but I don't know. I will say <laughs> this is this is me being corny. So I had I had to watch it on VHS to do the notes for this episode because I, you know, I wasn't going to be able to just watch it on Blu-ray and then turn around and type up all my notes within like a couple of days of recording. But I don't know. It felt kind of cool to be watching this movie on VHS. It just felt like that was the way I needed to watch it to cover it on a podcast. Does that make yeah, any sense? Yeah, this is sense? like people a little older than us that, that like to listen to their albums on, you know, vinyl has made a resurgence, uh, mm. and uh, which led to probably one of the most amusing exchanges I've ever had in my professional life. Uh, we, over the holidays, were selling a turntable at Staples, because, you know, when you think of office supplies, you think of turntables. And yeah. I was just like, oh, that's kind of cool, because it had the little thing for the 45, the little adapter. And mm -hmm. the thing actually had the 45, the 33, and the 78 settings. And I'm like, oh, it's got all three settings. It's like, and the people I work with are like 20 years younger than me. <laughs> and this one this one woman, uh, I almost called her a girl. She's a woman. Uh, this one woman was like, what are you talking about? I go, well, you know, there was 45s. Predominantly, when I was younger, I said there was 45s and there was 33s. Well, what was a 33? Well, a 33 was a long playing record. What's a long playing record? Okay, it's like a full album. Oh, so what was a 45? I go, a 45 is like two songs, one on one side, one on the other. And she's like, wait, people used to just buy one song? I'm like, actually, yes. I mean, this is kind of mm -hmm. like the buying, like the 99 cent track off of iTunes or, or wherever. She's like, yeah. She's like, so they were different speeds. I'm like, yeah, because you know, it was just kind of the thing is, then there were 78s. What was a 78? Well, even older records <laughs> played mm -hmm. in 78. And then I realized that I sounded insane. 
And I threw out the term single at one point, and they looked at me like I was making things up. I'm like, no, guys, you got to understand, this is exactly how it used to be. It wasn't that you went to Spotify, or you went to iTunes, or you went to the Google Play Store, or it went to Amazon and bought tracks single by single. And I've been listening. Slate does a really good music podcast called Hit Parade. I could not recommend yes. it enough. And, yes, I agree. And I have learned so much about music history from that. And it's just like, it's crazy to think that it hasn't been like 10 years since, you know, iTunes really made a big difference, but it feels mm-hmm. like a century. So, but yeah, I, I was the insane. So watching something on VHS is kind of like that. It's <laughs> like, you're not going to stream it. No, we had these tapes and the sound quality is really bad. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Not only that, my copy is um it was pre-owned because I in 98 I think I want to say it was the summer of 98 my video store was trying to get into the format change with DVD, right? And they would be gone within the next few years. Um, Blockbuster helped put them out of business if the format mm-hmm. didn't do it for them. And um, they were having like a $5 sale for 5 for $20 or whatever. And I had a $20 bill and I picked up among a number of other movies, a few that I still have, this. So it has the sticker for Savile's Video Empire. It has the number on it. It has the little sticker that if you left it in the car, the thing would turn black because it was in the it was in the heat too long or whatever. And it has the fifty cents charge if not rewound sticker. So it's just a <laughs> it is a moment in time. Um, yeah. So what what is uh, like what is your your story with this when, when you first saw it when you first were aware of it and uh, and how it I don't know and any impact on you when you were fourteen fifteen or whenever you first saw this so. I have three older sisters, and we were all two years apart. So Mary is six years older than me. Jenny is four. Jane is two. Jane and I, being the closest in age, we fought like cats and dogs. Uh, But Jane was, like, Mary Mary didn't get into, like, alternative music until she was, like, out of college. Like, she and Jane would go to Lollapalooza in the 90s. But Mary was very much, I remember her record collection was like Duran Duran and the Footloose soundtrack and Bonnie Tyler's Faster Than the Speed of Night. Uh, Ginny was into, like, she went through a period of loving The Doors and then loving Alabama. It was really weird. Uh, But Hmm. Jane was the one that really got into alternative music and alternative movies and such. And because this was the late 80s and the early 90s, movies more and more and more movies were coming out on video faster and her and her friends would rent movies and come over to the house. And I know HBO probably showed these as well, but like the commitments was, was a good example of, of a film that I would have never watched had she not rented it so many times. And this was one of those movies. This was one of the, it had to be like 91, uh, cause it would have been when it came out on video. And I remember watching it and just being kind of like, when you're 15, 16 years old, uh, you know, things like this seem like, you know, like damn the man, you know, this world, 
this world <laughs> is fucked is, you know, like yeah. th- th- that just seems like like this is the truth. But it was really one of those movies that I think kind of got to me because I remember as I was watching it to talk about it tonight, I was just like, oh, yeah, that happened. Oh, yeah, that ha-. I remember thinking that was really weird. Like everything that happened, like all the scenarios that were brought up in this film, thinking back on my high school years, are entirely plausible. <laughs> and I think that's one of the things it was like. It was this kid who, you know, he he was socially uh, dysfunctional. I was somewhat socially dysfunctional. He managed to make himself cool. He got a really good-looking girl to like him. So Mm -hmm. there was a lot this movie had going on with it. And I just remember, like, it had to be on HBO a bunch of times as well. Uh, and we may have taped it. I'm not sure. It, 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 that part of it's fuzzy. But I remember, especially when I was like a junior in high school, the film took on new meaning because my friend Eric Stovkin was a huge Concrete Blonde fan. Uh, and that's kind of what he brought to the friendship was me listening to more Concrete Blonde. And then I'm, I realized that their cover of Everybody Knows was the one from this film. So... But yeah, it was just like one of those, it, it was, it was in this rotation of films at the time, like Heather's was another one where it was yeah. just like, these were films about teenagers and I was finally a teenager. This wasn't the John Hughes films where everything was this kind of like vague, oh, that's going to happen to me someday. This was, oh, this is what's, this what's could happen to me right now. Yeah, and the Hughes films, as much as I like them, um, they are fairy tales in some more than others. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, either they're like total adolescent fantasy in some way, or they're they're literal fairy tales of romance and stuff. And they always did seem like aspirational in a sense. You know, um, like I've always felt I love those movies, but I always felt detached from the world of those (laughs) movies because I knew it wasn't going to exist. I was the same way where I kind of identified some of the people in the movie and some of the places like, you know, just we, we either grew up or drove through or drove around those suburban Mm -hmm. tracts developments. I mean, should I live in one now? Um, you know, and, and, and those personalities of people, like, you know, the people in this movie were not, you know, Slater is not unattractive and, and an entire generation, an entire group of listeners listening to this, when I say Samantha Mathis, just sighed, yes. you know, because we all, we all fell for Samantha Mathis in this movie before she took her time. Yeah, because she was, she but, was just that girl, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Well, funny enough, there's a there's a scene. So she has a she has a few outfits in the movie, and there's one outfit. She's mostly black, and she's wearing these black and white stripe uh, leggings, mm-hmm. right? I knew a good, and I could flip through a yearbook that's upstairs right now. There were a good four or five girls at my high school who wore those like almost that exact outfit to a T. You know, so it, it, it this felt like almost very real in, in a way. But, you know, um, my my story is is similar. Um, 
I had a couple of friends who really liked it. I remember seeing a couple of the TV spots for it and, and remember the, uh, title because I also remember the, uh, because it, it reminded me of the song by, uh, Mars, M-A slash A, you know, pump up the volume. Uh, but I never saw it until, um, now my memory's fuzzy. Either I watched part of it at a friend's house on video or it was actually on a syndicated channel and I caught part of it and it, and then I went and rented it for myself and, and watched it and then watched it a number of times to the point where, like I said, um, a few minutes ago when I found it for five bucks in the uh, previously viewed sale at my video store, I was like, yoink. And I, I still have that copy because, you know, up until recently, it really isn't available anywhere. So let me get into the plot and then we can kind of talk about, you know, uh, talk about what, what we thought of it. Now, um, Christian Slater plays Mark Hunter. He's a high school student who was a transfer from the East coast when his dad, Brian landed a high profile superintendent's job. They refer to him as the commissioner of schools, but he's the superintendent. By day, Mark is a quiet, unassuming student who is incredibly shy and keeps to himself. Um, by night, he is Happy Harry Hardon, or Hard Harry, and I'm just going to use Hard Harry, uh, a pirate radio DJ who has captivated the student body of Hubert H. Humphrey High School. Harry, Happy Harry Hardon, that's, you know, I, I see what he did there. Uh, the show consists of him playing what we would have then termed alternative music. I don't even know what they're calling it these days. I still call it alternative. Inventing his frustration with the world around him. Nobody knows who he is. Uh, he uses a voice uh, modulator or harmonizer to disguise his voice when he broadcasts. Um, he goes on every night at 10. Sometimes, as one of the characters says, sometimes he's on for 10 minutes, sometimes he's on for five hours. Uh, but like I said, everybody has captivated him. And they even go as far as to mail him letters wherein they confess their problems. Uh, some of the letter writers choose to remain anonymous, such as a dirty letter writer who is nicknamed the Eat Me, Beat Me Lady. Meanwhile, others enclose their phone numbers. This leads to Harry calling the person with one, uh, the person with the issue. Uh, one is which is fake and leads to one of my favorite lines from the film. I can smell a lie like a fart in a car. <laughs> but others are real. And uh, one of those real ones is a student named Malcolm Kaiser, who has written Harry a note saying that he's going to kill himself. Harry calls him and talks to him. And while he does not tell Malcolm... Uh, to kill himself. His wording in the conversation is just vague enough that when Malcolm does kill himself, Harry is given the blame for his death. And at one point later in the movie, there's a news report that he is going to be charged uh, with, I think, solicitation or or accessory or something along the lines of that implicates him in this young man's suicide. It's at this point that Mark wants to quit, but he's encouraged to keep going by Nora De Niro. This is a girl, this is a Samantha Mathis, who has been eyeing him since the film opened, and she has figured out that he is hard hairy. Um, going so far as almost to do the Lois Lane putting glasses on Clark's picture, on Superman's picture in Superman 2. <laughs> bit um like really close but the thing is though she's the eat me beat me lady and uh she also winds up being his accomplice and love interest uh, as the movie goes on the night after malcolm's suicide harry goes on the air again and he vents he tells everyone to do something um about their thoughts and feelings but you know not to kill themselves you know that they are 
that they are very upset with the world and they are very they're crying out for help so he tells them all to do something crazy to cry out and there's a lot of screaming and catharsis and drastic action taken by others for instance perfect page woodward the diane court of hebrew humphrey high school because she's very mm -hmm. diane court uh, takes all of her academic awards and the pearl necklace she always wears and even her her hair dryer and throws it in the microwave and just sits there across the, the room and just watches it explode. She later shows up at a community forum with a broken nose and tries to advocate for Harry. And then she goes out and like growls and screams at the news cameras. Um, I should also point out that this is one of two Alan Moyle films where a perfect, perfect girl goes completely batshit halfway through mm -hmm. the film because Liv Tyler does the same thing in Empire Records. So anyway, the community is up in arms. Harry is gaining in popularity and the media, especially local news guy Shep Shepard. That guy's such a tool. Yes, too, he is. Is, eating, <laughs> is eating it up with a spoon. Um, and once they hear that Harry's signal is being broadcast over state lines, the police get the FCC involved. And I'll get to that part of the plot in a second, um, because what I want to talk about first is this subplot that's quietly running through the film, which is a school scandal that Harry doesn't so much fully reveal, but hints at, and that his English teacher, Miss Emerson, ends up blowing the lid off of at the very end of the film. So uh, the scandal is that Miss Cresswood, who is played by Annie Ross, who was in Superman 3, so Mike, it all comes all back, comes to, Superman, back yes. to Superman. Um, if you don't know who she is, by the way, people, she's the one who gets swallowed up by the computer and becomes like, you know, all pewter eyed and everything. And it scared the crap out of me when I was six years old. Um, <laughs> anyway, she's expelling low achieving students in an effort to boost the high school's test scores. But what she's been doing that's illegal is keeping them on the roll. So she gets mm -hmm. the money. Miss Emerson gets fired because she starts looking into one of the students, this kid named Luis Chavez, who just stopped showing up for class. And um, so she starts poking around. Um, Crestwood fires her, but she uses her last like access to buildings and files in the school district to get to, to find the paper trail and then bring it to Brian Mark's father at the, uh, during the film's climax. And this is just about when everyone in the community has gathered in the school parking lot to listen to Harry's last broadcast. Uh, this is a broadcast that is done via a remote setup that Mark and Nora have hooked to Mark's mom's uh, Jeep. The FCC chases them around and he is eventually forced to reveal his identity where his, when his modulator breaks, they drive out to the high school and in front of everyone, the FCC cuts his signal. The cops take him and Nora into custody, but not before he compels everyone to steal the air and talk hard. And the film ends with us panning away from the suburbs at night and the sounds of several other pirate radio stations going live as teenagers. And I believe Miss Emerson, his English teacher, start their own broadcasts. Um, yeah, so that's a, a brief. There, there's a few things I left out. The uh, one of my one of my favorite scenes um, being where at one point Mark's parents are kind of onto him, um, and they they're knocking on the door. And his room, by the way, in his house is in his basement. Mm -hmm. And you have to like you can see when they're knocking on the door, and and they go back up after the scene is over. You can see the laundry room. You can see the stairs. You're like, okay, so this is how. Um, he's able to get away with being so loud in the middle of the night. He's like two floors below them. 
but they really think he's there because like, you know, he won't open the door and he'd been talking or whatever. And he hides all of his equipment and they're, they're, they're just about to bust it when Nora, who had been there, jumps up from behind the couch. She's like, no, he was with me. And they're like, Oh, thank God you were making out with yeah, the dad, which I was like. <laughs> dad all but says, nice going, buddy. Yeah. Go. <laughs> I mean, it's just yeah. like, and I remember when that scene happened, when my sister Ginny uh, was, was home from college and she saw that she just started laughing. She goes, is he congratulating him for, I'm like, yeah, this would never happen to me. If my dad came no. down, if, if I, my dad found out that I was hiding a girl, I mean, to be fair, and this is nothing against my father, it was a different time, y'all, but I think my parents were at one point kind of thinking that I was gay, because I really didn't have a whole lot of girlfriends. I was hanging out with a lot of theater people, uh, so hmm. I, I, I think there was probably some baby boomer relief when I started dating, but it would if, if I had snuck a girl into the house, it, all hell would have broken loose. Uh, after she left, uh, yeah, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been like, yeah, you go champ basically, which is almost <laughs> what he would, you know, I can't take his dad seriously through that, this entire film because he's the red skull. Yeah, that's right. From the, the uh, 1990, 1990 Captain America movie. Yeah, so, um, but no, that scene, I, I'm glad you brought it up because I was going to, because that scene makes me laugh every single time. It's just like, that is so realistic. But on one hand, it's very realistic. <laughs> it, it is. And I'm trying to think of like, how would my parents have handled this? Um, I think they would have been polite enough to the girl until she left and then would have... Yeah. Uh, would have been would have been annoyed at me. I, I think, but knowing my parents, um, they would have been more mad at me about if I would been if they had caught me drinking, than they had caught me having um, caught me with a girl. So <laughs> that was kind of their priorities uh, in terms of, of discipline and things like that. So, um, but no, I, I and I and I've been watching the film on the Blu-ray. Uh, this week and I just recently rewatched that scene and I laughed out loud because it is kind of unrealistic yet at the same time it's a pretty funny scene it's just like well that's the you slide dog. that's the thing about this film is you know I, I I really I was really thinking about it because you know on one hand it made me very nostalgic hmm. the reason why I, I I responded to it so much as an adult is it felt realistic to my high school experience from the fashion mm -hmm. to the music to how kids talk to each other. The, you know, I, we said earlier that the, you know, John Hughes had kind of that idealized version of what high school was. And, you know, there were so many sitcoms in the eighties of family. So you saw teenagers on screen all the time, but you never really saw like the experience examined. And it, it's kind of interesting that this film came out in 1990. I started high school technically in 1991, though 1990 mm -hmm. would have been when I was a, uh, a freshman. Freshman. And from the fashion to the music, to everything, it all felt like super familiar. The only thing that threw it off is how grunge kind of crashed the party around 1991, 1992. But even then, a lot of the fat, like, um, 
what's her name? Uh, God, I'm trying to think of her name in the film. I just want to call. I'm calling her Samantha Mathis. Nora's friend, uh, the blonde with the mm-hmm. glasses, who I remember thinking was freaking hot when I was a teenager. That, <laughs> and I was like looking at her now, and I can't really think that much. But to be fair, I looked up the actor. She was born in 1970, so she's actually six years older than I am. <laughs> technically mm. but yeah those that that those were the type like and everybody was smoking like this film was full yeah. of people smoking and that was just like this is so it's kind of funny that the director of this film made this and made empire records because that's kind of the alpha and omega of our generation in high school yeah yeah cuz the empire records is where we start to see the shift. It could, well, it literally is released in 1995. So say it starts to, I start to see the shift from the early to the late nineties, like no shit, Sherlock. But at the same time, you do see like the coming, um, of the next generation to the next generation of teen movies. Um, and like can't hardly wait is three years after that, and that's another movie I kind of I, I, I kind of associate with like you know I associate plainly with its era, but it's it's one that I've rewatched a number of times, and there's like an evolution toward that particular mm-hmm. movie. Um, and and yeah, you're right, Empire Empire Records, and the other movie that came out the same time as it clueless are the set the end note for our generation. And, you know, granted we were 18, 19 years old. I graduated high school in 1995. So we were, we were at the end of our teenage years at that point. So it was, it was the kind of the bow on the end of it. Yeah, you're right. So to, I guess to, to get into it too, uh, the film, uh, we, we mentioned the adults and we can mention the adults really quickly because there's the adults are, if there's a weak point to the writing, there are no adult characters who aren't really, really that more than just really one dimensional, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. But they, they serve, they all serve a purpose. You know, um, Annie Ross is good. She's bringing some Piper Laurie vibes with, uh, with Crestwood. Especially um, that hair. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and you have, uh, Murdoch or whatever his name is, who's the shop teacher, who's also like looks like he's was he also you know, the vice principal. He seemed to like or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he did I have think a shop see- teacher haircut, though. You're absolutely right on mm-hmm. that. <laughs> and I could have sworn I saw him in other things, playing like a cop or whatever. I mean, he's no Mitch Pileggi in um, Three O'clock High, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but he is definitely um he's definitely that that vibe and then you have uh, Mr. Deaver who is the really weenie looking um guidance counselor who who is probably the person who does one of the most heinous things in the entire movie as far as like the things that the adults do to the students um and that is the uh the thing that that Mark uncovers um, is the fact that uh, Crestwood's been expelling all these students, and Deaver's been helping yes. her. And one of the students was this girl named Cheryl, who got she was, she was just pregnant. And he's Mark's at his house, and he's rifling through his dad's office, um, and he finds a memo from Deaver to Crestwood saying, like, basically, you can kick Cheryl out because she's pregnant. Yeah, I've tried to. Like, you know, 
I've tried to talk to her and, and basically get her to leave on her own, but we've got to do something about this because she's not being honest, you know, realistic about her situation. Uh, and, and that's the thing about this movie is it deals like, you know, you didn't have in the, 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 the high school movies before this, uh, the, the really popular ones, you didn't have people talking about suicide, homosexuality, and teen pregnancy. And this one mm-hmm. is the trifecta of that. Uh, Cheryl, by the way, is played by an actress named Holly Sampson. I looked at her IMDb. Yeah. It is extremely interesting. Um, because she took a shift uh, a couple years after this film into more adult movies. Would be the best way to say that. She is alleged to have had some sort of... Um sexual relations don't know all the details with tiger woods at his bachelor party ah, well there you go yeah she yeah I, but I her, that her, she has a very long I, imdb and none of it i saw her after I, like 19 because I, I was doing that i was i was clicking on the people i was like huh i was like whoa so yeah <laughs> um but yeah it, it, it's this under underhanded thing which is presented in a very dramatic way but at the same time is not unrealistic mm-hmm. as far as what adults have done to to students um over the years especially back then you know oh, yeah. the, the student students have a little bit more of a voice uh, and and this all depends on the district that you're in it depends on the state that you're in and in some cases unfortunately it depends on your race uh because there are students of color who see this happen to them and and, and you know this kid, Luis Chavez, whose test scores were too low. And that was like why he got expelled. So it was just one of those things where they were just, they were weeding out, they were weeding people out, which is, you know, and it's, it's heinous that somebody who is supposed to be the person, one of the people in the school that you can go to talk to about these particular issues would do that to another person. And then he's trying to put, um, put up a front, like he actually does give a crap with this yeah the the scene where mark calls him because mark figures this out uh because he goes into his dad's office mm-hmm. uh and he finds uh a, the letter that deaver wrote and so he actually calls deaver uh and pr- pretending to be like a radio station that wants to interview him and he's just like i and deaver's like i put together a comprehensive and it's just like oh man this guy's full of crap it's just uh, yeah. and, and and it's yeah. funny because I never experienced anything like that directly, but I remember mm-hmm. there was a point, and this is total teen drama, where my best friend in high school had asked this girl who was also a friend of ours to prom, and then they stopped dating, and he never officially said they weren't going to prom, and he had started dating this other girl. Uh, who actually shares my birthday. It's really weird. Uh, and they were going to go to prom or the ball because it was because my high school was yeah. weird. And this other girl who's a friend of ours, like, got really hurt by this. And it divided our chorus. <laughs> and the teacher decided to kind of get involved Oh, God. And it was just like, I remember thinking at the time, like, you're the adult in this situation. Like, I'm, I don't 
I, I think Ben could have handled it better, but I'm not going to sit here and, and, and like, cause a bunch of guy a bunch of the guys in the chorus, cause there were far more women than men in the chorus. Uh, where I was just like, well, we're going to go talk to him. And I actually stood up and got in front of this large group of men. I was like, guys, you're going to have to go through me. No one's going after Ben right now. This is not happening. This is none of your business. This is between Ben and her. And that's how it should be treated. And it was like, so, but, the, but that, the, the way, and, and I had really, well, actually I had a couple things against my chorus teacher eventually. Um, because I felt like after that, she kind of took out what she was mad at Ben on me a little bit because mm. we were best friends. And it was just, but yeah, te- adults are terrible, y'all. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not saying this as like, you know, like all adults are terrible, but man, when you get into these academic situations, especially, and, and I can ask you this because you're a teacher who does this. Yeah. Is there like this tendency for them to kind of get drawn up in, in the dramatics of, of, of teenagers? And, uh, it, well, everybody knows if you've watched enough Degrassi, what you do is you, you teach the lesson that is about a topic related to what's going on in the drama of the kids' lives. And, and they, they take that to heart <laughs> and they solve their problems but because they listen to you in class. Um, so you talking about, you know, the catcher and the rye really gets the, no, um, I, I think it happens sometimes and I think it doesn't. I think it depends on the person. Um, I think the age of the teacher sometimes can, can be that way. Sometimes it might happen with advisors and coaches, perhaps more than teachers. Yeah. I, I can see uh, that because coaches, Coaches have a different relationship with the students. Yeah. They, I mean, that, that there's there's a mentor relationship there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, but I, you know, just from personal experience, I've I've taken a lot of effort to, you know, have relationships, positive relationships with the students I have, you know, so that they feel that they can, they that I I can be of help when they need it. But they are a aware that if there is something serious, I am under law required to report it to somebody in administration or guidance. You know, I have, you know, there's, there's a, there literally are laws in the books. But the other thing is, is that I, I, I have worked very hard to, um, detach or to, to put that detachment between the two of us. It doesn't hurt that now I am like their dad. Yeah. I was about to say, you know? you're, you're now at that age where mm-hmm. these are conceivably your kids. Lit- <laughs> literally almost my son will be Brett will be going to that high school next year. So yeah, so that's, but, but no, I, I totally see how this could happen. Like where they're getting involved. Um, and then Deaver tries to set up that hotline bionic, believe it or not, I care, which is it just, it, it's that I thought was brilliant because I'm like, that's such a stupid ass name for it. Something that somebody would come up with who has no clues to what her kids said. And the, the conversation that Nora and her friend have is something I would have totally heard at my high school where she's like oh i guess it's after 8 30 i can go ahead and kill myself now because the hours for it were from 8 30 to 3 30 you know and, and, and that was another thing about this film that i absolutely loved is that the kids sounded like kids because mm-hmm. the thing about going back to empire records just it's a good comparison because one it's the same director uh yeah and, yeah. and two it, it's a generational thing but the kids in, in empire records 
were the idealized versions of what teenagers wanted, you know, like, cause that was such a huge film mm-hmm. among my peer group in like the summer of 96 for some reason. Uh, cause we were still close enough to high school that we could identify with it. But it's just like, you mm-hmm. know, everybody in that movie, even the ones that were screwed up were screwed up in kind of this idealized way. So it's yeah. like, you know, she was taking caffeine pills. I mean, this is 30 <laughs> seconds from Saved by the Bell. She's so excited. But the the kids in this, the the writing of the teenagers in this film, like when when Nora and and, and Janie were kind of bumping into each other, it's just like, you know, bitch, slut. I was just like, no, I I had female friends that did that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And um, the other thing that I know, just noticing these things, because, again, I've seen this movie enough times to start to notice the little things, is that – he does not prey on the whole cliche of cliques within uh-huh, the school. Uh-huh. They cl- they clearly exist because you see them in various montages and you see how students gather in like groups because it's a natural thing. But a they're all listening to him, and by the end of the movie, they're all listening to him. Um, and B, like, there's the one kid, and I can't remember his like what his name Donald or whatever his name is, um, who is He's making tapes and of selling them, them and selling the tapes, which is just like, of course, there's a kid who's doing that. And they, they think that he um, they, they're like, they think he has a connection to him because they're idiots. And they don't realize that. No, you idiots. He's throwing a blank tape into the radio every night and just hitting record. And, and the fact that they're he like, was able to transverse the various clicks because of that was supremely mm-hmm. realistic because that yeah. is how high school. That was how high school was for me. I did not hang out with people that I should have should have, in quotes, been hanging out with. Like, I got along with the metalheads like crazy. They, <laughs> hmm. I mean, it was just, and, and, and I, maybe it's because I didn't look down on them. Um, but, you know, they were the, like, like I, I was able to kind of bounce around a little bit. Maybe it's because I just didn't have like a, like I had a group of friends, but we weren't in a, one of the quote unquote cliques. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's like we weren't, but I, like, the, the freaking captain of the football team thought I was hilarious. And we had a speech class when I was a senior. And I would just make up these speeches because I was trying to be funny. He thought they were hilarious. And suddenly after that, like football players started saying hi to me in the hallways. And the only thing that I could figure out is that they had a meeting, like with a clipboard and everything. <laughs> and I was put off, taken off of a, I'm not invited to the parties. <laughs> But they're not trying to shove me into a locker either. <laughs> You're a made yeah, man. Just, <laughs> suddenly, I'm like uh, Ray Liotta in, in, in Goodfellas. Yeah, in Goodfellas. <laughs> but no, that, that and watching like the metalheads and the alternative girls like hanging out. That was just like, no, this sh- this is how shit happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They just it felt very organic. Um, by the way. Speaking of metalheads, um, you got two who show up. There's this one kid um, who is one of the kids who's – we follow like three or four kids here and there through these subplots. And there's this one kid, and I can't his name, but he's blonde and has this sort of – you know, yeah. Um, and it's kind of funny because he's like he's like this disciple, this stand for Harry. Mm-hmm. And like one point where he's like, you know, where, where he's not coming, he's like, come on, buddy. Don't let me down. Like he, he is so – this is so important to him, especially because Crestwood kicked him out. And then – 
out of nowhere, Seth Green walks yeah, up. Yeah, I'm like, when Seth Green popped up, I'm like, okay, I know he was acting pretty hardcore around this time period. I don't remember him in this film at all. He's, he's the bridge between Gen X and Millennial he really Teen is. movies. Because, he's, if you think about it, this is the same year he was in It. Yeah, and he had been in, um, he was Chucky in Can't Buy Me Love mm-hmm. a few years before that, and then he then he's all over the the late nineties can't hardly wait. Of course. Um, and what is probably my favorite role of his? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, Kenny he, Fisher. he embodied that, that, <laughs> that wannabe hip hop white kid from the suburbs, of, like, like, like perfectly yeah. in that film. But yeah, he's like, he gives the kid, uh, Donald, whatever his name, a tape and they, they hook it into the, uh, the PA and they start playing like a, a remix of, of one of the calls or whatever. And, yeah, so there's there's nothing. I guess the most over the top thing would be the fact that Slater has the radio station, you know, which but it's, it's the gimmick upon which the movie rests. And honestly, I can't think of very many people who could have pulled that off the way he did. Yeah, that, that's when I read um, that John Cusack was up for the role. I'm like, that wouldn't have worked at all. This film would not be what it was without Slater. Yeah. Slater. Mark is very much a Clark Kent Superman in this movie, mm-hmm. uh, right down to his yeah. glasses. So this isn't this mm-hmm. isn't Mike the Superman fan seeing Superman where Superman doesn't exist. It is it is very much a theme, and the glasses are part of that uh, because yeah. he looks he looks very different in his glasses. I'll I'll give him that. But he Mark is one of those people that has figured it out a lot earlier than other people his age. And I kind of feel bad because those people don't tend to transition to adulthood very well. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like th- this film, I, 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 I messaged you uh, when I started watching it. I'm like, this movie isn't subtle at all. Is it? This is like oh, no. right out on front street <laughs> yeah. about, yeah. You know, and what Mark is talking about is that there is a plasticity and a fakeness to the world. And there's a point where you can tell this was written in the middle of the 80s because he says we're in the middle of a decade and it was 1990. So that kind of tripped in my head. Oh, this is the script that they didn't change because sometimes they do that (laughs) because there's so much else going on that something slips through. Oh, yeah, yeah. But he is the one that has figured out that his parents are full of shit, that adults are full of shit, but that there really isn't anything beyond – what they're doing right now anyways. So, the, mm-hmm. and he's kind of acting out because of that. His setup is complicated. Like he explains at one point, my dad got me this ham radio set to talk to people back home. And it's like, did kids do that in the eighties? I, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, and, and he's, it's just, a. It's a line that I think is in there just so that we can kind of figure out like how he has the setup, you know, like they, they, it just, it's a, it's a necessary exposition yeah. bit. And, um, although at the same time, this is like, I was joking with you, uh, before we, we started that, um, it wasn't until a couple of days ago when I was watching the scene where he's rifling through the, um, 
papers on his dad's desk that I noticed that his dad has Grateful Dead posters all over his office at home. And he, so he's, I said, he's literally that Don Henley lyric, yeah. you know, the dead head sticker on the Cadillac. His parents are absent in the in a very realistic way. Yeah, they're not terrible where, people. No, no, they're concerned, but they just kind of don't really know what to do about it. And he's been pushed. He pushes, he knows exactly how to push them away. Or and even says, you know, hey, you stay out of my hair. I keep me, I keep my grades. No, that was up, you the know? deal. And I knew, yeah, it was the deal. And I knew people like that. You know, I knew people like that who were in honors classes with me who would be blitzed out of their minds on weekends. And I'm like, how the hell do you get away with that? I would be in so much trouble. And you're like, you know, it took a while for me to realize it's like, oh. You're on the football, you're in the varsity soccer team, you're the swimmer, you're the you're the good one in school. So you now have you have that hand, you know, and, and you can you can you know how to manipulate your parents like that. So he's kinda like that. And and the ham radio set, as as weird as that is, seems like the type of thing that he could either convince his dad to buy. Or that his dad would think, oh, maybe you would want to do this because Mark felt like complete crap because his dad uprooted them and brought them all the way out to P- Paradise Hills, Arizona. And, and I, I have this a, image in my head of his dad getting this and him going to the library because the Internet was not a thing in thing. 1989. <laughs> uh, and uh-huh. like looking up like magazine articles about ham radio and then like piecing everything together because it is a very piecemeal mm-hmm. thing. And I, the, the funniest thing to me is the sar- the random Sergeant Slaughter figure uh, on his uh, voice <laughs> yeah, disguiser. I, I was just like, and, and that's not yeah. only a, 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 a Sergeant Slaughter figure. That's a later, like, like 1989 Sergeant Slaughter because of the way he's mm-hmm. painted. Uh, but it's just like one of those things where I look at his, at Mark and I'm like, it also makes perfect sense that he is an only child because all of yeah. my friends that were only children, like had this kind of detached relationship with their parents when they were teenagers mm-hmm. and were able to do so much more than I was because they were the only kid. Now, Ben, who's my best friend that I mentioned earlier, wasn't an only child, but his sister was much older than him. So she was never at the, at home when he was in junior high and high school. So it's it's like one of those things where he may as well have been. And he had like the big stereo system and a computer set up and all this stuff that I would never even have thought to ask for, <laughs> given my yeah. circumstances. Well, it, and you see the amp with the guitar and you see the Casio can I have actually I if I turn around where I'm sitting there's a Yamaha keyboard that I got when I was about 1994 95 around that time as well um you know it still works but you know and, and it's it's actually the, the instruments are part of his cover mm-hmm. you know when he when he gets caught he starts putting things away he puts the Casio on top of this this is like it's kind of covering it up so it almost looks like he farts around with like music and stuff and these are the toys that he bought that they bought for him because yeah he's in the it is part of the part of our generation where there were and there still are people who really don't know how to have that conversation. So they tend to buy things for their kids, you know, so that that felt very real to me, as was the he gets to live in the basement. 
you know, like all those little things. It's like we don't want our kid to be miserable, so we'll give him a bunch of things that seem reasonable enough, right? Yeah. You know? And, and what I like about it is that he doesn't go – there are a few times where he's chewing scenery, but I don't know. He, he can vacillate between Mark putting on the this – is, this is the Batman of it. Harry's an act. Mark is kind of there. There's an in-between mm-hmm. that this guy really is, and we see it. We see it come out when Nora's around him, um, but – but like you know, Harry. So so he's being deliberately hammy mm-hmm. when he's when he's be doing his shtick. But then he'll he'll have that call. And and you brought up um, some of the issues that were brought up for a movie that came out in 1990. The way he handles this call that he gets from this this letter he gets from this kid with a number about um, he had been uh, the kid had been on a date with another guy. And he told the other guy how he felt about him, and they started fooling around, and then the other guy's friends came out, and he realized it was a setup, and they threw his clothes in the trees and everything. And he's just trying to talk to the kid, and the kid is just like, you know, he has one point, he says, you know, you're probably going to say I'm just like, you know, a, a total, you know, F word. And he's like, no, you know, a screwed up F word. He's like, no, they're the ones who are screwed up. They're the ones who are confused. And the kid's like, you know, I really know who I am. It's just... This sucks. Mm. And you didn't get a lot no, of that in 1990. No, the, you know, dealing with positive LGBTQ characters in 1990 was someone saying, oh, they're just like us. And mm-hmm. that was pretty much the extent of it. I mean, you know, you either had the flamboyantly gay characters uh, or it would be talked about, but not talked about. And this movie not only talked about it, it brought up a scenario that to me was extremely realistic for what happened mm-hmm. to this kid. And, and yeah. dealing with that, and, and, and the way they dealt with that, I'm like, this is really woke for 1990. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To the point where Mathis in that Ringer article said, uh, it felt like something was happening. We were moving away from that synthesized sort of sound and moving into something edgier, which... I think we both have acknowledged already the, the we'll get into the, the look in the soundtrack. And she said there was anger. And I thought that Alan really tapped into that with this movie. And I think we we've, we've talked about that. I do want to talk about her yes. and her character because she is, she is the second most important character in the movie. Um, she eventually becomes his accomplice. Not only that, she becomes like his biggest supporter and she calls him on his shit because at one point when the FCC shows up, he's going to quit. Like he, he wants to quit like two or three times. Yeah. And at one point he's like burning all of the letters he got in his, in a gas grill and he's pouring lighter fluid on it. How he didn't explode something there, but whatever. Um, and, uh, and she's like, what the hell is wrong with you? She, she's basically like, you really need to understand what you have done. And I think he does, but he's not, he's in denial of it. And she has like one of those rooms where there's like all this crap all over the room. She has her own whiteboard and stuff. But I, I've, I knew, again, I knew people who had rooms like that and stuff. Like now we all kind of had a crush on her, but at the same time, I don't know. She felt really, she felt really cool down to the fact that even though she was, um, you know, she's a bit of a clothes horse, so to speak. It, 
a clothes horse, so to speak, and that she had the she had a look. It didn't feel costumey. I mean, what was your impression of her as a as a character? And then, like you know, Mathis is is ten years later, she would have been the manic pixie dream girl, and that's not who mm-hmm. she is. This is this this is no. the the antithesis of that because she's. She's one of she's basically somebody that would have hung out with my sister Jane, uh, which is why I felt like I knew her because I knew people like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's obvious she's not super popular, but she has friends. Uh, and when she's. She's got a lot of the same feelings that Mark does, which is, I guess, why she invents the meet, eat me, beat me lady uh, persona. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and she's she's writing poetry, which, again, it's like all of my sister's friends. God, it is just like, like I really felt like she was she hung out at my house. Um, so but what I liked about her is that. In lesser hands, Mark could have been very creepy, but he's not. Uh, and she kind of bring she uh, and on the same level, she could have been like this perfect personification of an ideal but she's not because she's got issues she's got problems uh you know she's kicked out of school at one point uh yeah because she basically tells (laughs) she tells the principal to fuck off essentially (laughs) yeah they they drag her in for cutting class and then she tells the principal for to fuck off and then she's like you should have seen the look on her face it's like she was waiting for me to do it and she is the one that kind of sees there's a lot of people listening to it because he's swearing and playing edgy music. But I also think it tapped into something that all these kids were feeling. And she was the one that saw it for what it was beyond him pretending to masturbate and (laughs) beyond him, you know, dropping the F bomb every five seconds it was you are saying something to the people of our school and are exposing a truth that the adults want to keep from us. And, and, and that's why I liked her so much is because she's basically the lowest lane of the movie. Literally, she's doing all the investigative work to figure out who he is. I mean, to the point where she follows him to the postal annex uh, mail place where he keeps his, yeah. uh, where he keeps his, uh, his mailbox, PO box. which by the way, I worked in one of those places and that brought up some memories of a 1995, uh, <laughs> but under, uh, under the name Charles, yeah, Farley. Farley, which the cop Farley. actually <laughs> seems amused by, yeah, yeah. um, but I, I think she is all, but she's also frightened on her own. I mean, she's she's a very vulnerable character. It's like she's probably outside of Mark, the most fully realized character in the film. And she Mm -hmm. had to be Uh, there's a there's a perfect symbiosis between those two characters, which the writer and director just got. And I loved the chemistry between her and Slater. Uh, One of my favorite behind the scenes stories is she does take her top off at one point, which 15-year-old me was very happy about. And apparently during that scene when they were filming it, like Grips and other crew were trying to hang around, and Christian Slater actually chased them off. 
so that it was only hmm. the people that absolutely needed to be there. And it's just like, that's kind of speaks to his character in a lot. Yeah. She was 19 yeah. when they did this. This mm. is like one of her first movies. And I was very impressed that being so new to it, that she was able to bring out so much of this character from the script. Yeah. And just thinking of little details of, of her character and she, she's written, like you said, she's, she's trying to track down who this guy is and she's writing him the poem. It's my favorite, like a jammy, jack me, push me, pull me, talk hard. It's just, and, and, and she's reciting the, but she's written, she, she remembers this so well. She's reciting it along with him. And then he's like, she never leaves me her number. And she's like, yep, nope, creepo. And it's just like, I don't, little things like mm -hmm. that contribute to that character in a way of of of, of making her more um, believable and, and having a little bit more agency than being this sort of you know weird obsessive pervy perv girl who's the through the through the pervy guy and stuff like that. And, and you're right about their chemistry. She forces interactions with him because she has to, but. And, and so those moments are forced, but they're supposed to be, but none of the, none of the genuine, the authentic moments between them seem very forced. Yeah. Like when she, after she figures everything out and he comes to school and they have like this really interesting dance almost where they're, they're, and they, they finally kiss at school and it's this really kind of realistic, tentative, uncertain, mm -hmm. awkward, like there's not it's it, it is it is more romantic than most romance scenes in these types of movies because mm -hmm. it felt so real. Yeah, there's almost a spontaneity mm -hmm. about it or something and and you know there's no um it it lacks the sheen of the Hughes yes. films. There's no simple minds playing over this or, or OMD or, or whatever, uh, and it's not lit in a way that's, you know, um, particularly glamorous. Um, this is this is something that I've noticed about when I when watching movies from this era and from the 90s uh, before filters started really making their way into every single film we've been watching lately. But um, this film just looks like it was just simply shot yeah. without, you know, and the lighting was the lighting, but it was like, you know, and, and granted, there are some scenes where it's, oh, obviously you were trying to get this shot in before the sun went down because I can totally tell that the sun started to set. But but that aside, there's no green filter, you know, <laughs> nobody's turned down the contrast. Um you know, which is which is a bone of contention I have with a lot of movies these days, and I really like how just again this this feels so natural, um, and the performances do, and and they do tap into teen angst, and the way it's portrayed, like we said we've said a couple of times, was we connect with very well the way the parents were reacting, the way the community reacts at that PTA mm -hmm. meeting, totally would happen yes. like that. Yeah, it it was one of those things where. Like the the parents are all up in arms because they don't understand what's going on because they're they're mm -hmm. wrapped up in their adult shit. I mean, <laughs> to, yeah. to, to to be very frank about it, sometimes you get adult you get lost in your adult stuff and you're not yeah. you're not paying attention to this heavy metal these kids are listening to uh, yeah, and yeah. stuff like that. So you know, 
I, I, I was the one that never, like, when we were teenagers, there was the big thing, like, Nirvana is going to make you want to kill yourself. Uh, mm-hmm. And I remember the girl I was dating in 95, she's like, yeah, my brother's in trouble because he snuck a Nirvana tape in the house, and my mom doesn't want her listen- <laughs> him listening to that because she's worried he'll kill himself. And I'm like, I think that's, spe- and, and I remember thinking at the time, that's stupid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, oh, I swear. <laughs> um... Yeah, and, and and that meeting going completely off the rails right away is just, again, it's totally what I see. Everybody has their thing to say. I see we go after this guy, like the whole thing of it. Uh, they get the guy. I just I had a, a note in my notes just before I get to two other teeny teen characters. The FCC guy totally looks like he could have been part of the first Bush administration. Um, Wasn't he Michael J. Fox's uh, dad in Teen Wolf? He was Michael J. Fox's dad in Teen Wolf. And just the way they have him dressed, like he looks like a government stoolie from (laughs) from the the stooge from the uh, from the early administration. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So we have the suicide of Malcolm. And then there's the other character in Paige Woodward. I'll, I'll get to Paige because something that has been bucking me for years and I don't have confirmation on it because I was looking at the Wikipedia summary of it and they're like, you know, she shoves everything in her microwave and it injures her because she shows the meeting with a broken nose and a couple black eyes. I have no conclusive proof of this. I am convinced her father hit her after what she did that her father hauled because her father is constantly coming in and putting that little bit of pressure on her, that little bit of pressure on her. Hey, you want to, you got that interview tomorrow, you know, make sure that you look good. You, you don't know, want to and, look puffy. Oh, you know, pick, you don't want to look puffy. So it's just that little, little bit of emotional manipulation. And I could see this of him just hauling off. So, um, so I could see that too. On the other hand, the thing did explode. That's true. But so that's what I always, <laughs> but I could, I could totally see with a page. Yeah. I liked Paige because, again, you know, you, you always you always look at like the the pretty popular girls, and it's and it's possible that Paige was terrible to some of the other girls in her high school because Jesus Christ, you know, guys are terrible to each other, but man, girls can be. Oh God! <laughs> um, and that's not me being sexist. That's me remembering high school, and it's me teaching yeah, high school yeah, well, there is that. uh but the thing is is that like there's a scene where she's like up on the pavilion she's just dancing like doing that mm-hmm. like you know high school dancing you know because it's not choreographed uh and they yeah. probably didn't even know what song they were going to play during during the scene but mark comes up and says hi to her and she looks startled but she doesn't like point and laugh she doesn't try to humiliate yeah him. she's just like Somebody from the lower lower decks has come up to first class, yeah. and I'm not used to this, but she was the one that when she turned, that felt completely realistic because she started mm-hmm. like hanging out with the with the metalheads and smoking yeah. and you know yelling. Yeah. It's just like because, like you said, her dad was putting all this pressure on her to get into Yale. And to see, but yeah, I could see him definitely coming home and the kitchen's on fire and her just like being blase about it, him hauling off and and hitting her in the face. Yeah. The two, two, and I think the actress does it really, really well. Um, The two scenes that I just always stick out to me, 
when she puts the stuff, she sits, she goes across the room, she sits down, and the way she just kind of casually watches the timer run down while eating a chip, yeah. I'm like, I've always, that, that moment always sticks with me. Then, and later in the movie, toward the climax of the film, where they're all at the high school, and she and, you know, the metalhead guy are dancing on top of a, of a car, of the limo of the um, FCC guy. I like how she portrays Paige as wanting to do this, but like 10% still unsure of herself. Like there's a little hesitation to her. I'm like, am I doing this right? Like, you know, and it was just, again, it was just, and it's, this is a secondary character. So she's essentially got one role in the movie, which is to put a bunch of shit in the microwave <laughs> and do that. You know, it's, it's, um, but, but I think she, I think she's written really well in a way that, um, that like you said, there, there are little bits of, of her that don't seem as caricaturish as say, uh, Molly Ringwald's character in The Breakfast Club. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have um, Malcolm Kaiser, who's the kid who, who commits suicide, which uh, we thankfully do not see. You know, um, it, I mean, of course, it didn't call for that. But, you know, <laughs> there's always that one filmmaker out there who feels the need to <laughs> to go that far. And it's... <sighs> It's this letter, um, you know, he's like, he basically talks about how lonely he is. I read somewhere that it was also had to do with the fact that he was yeah. gay and struggling with yeah, it. Yeah, that was, that was not sanitized from the, the final movie. version of the script. Yeah, yeah. Um, which which makes sense considering the call later on in the film with mm-hmm. the kid who we were just talking about. And the interaction he has with his mom is very benign. It, but it's said like, a lot. Her, That's the thing. Is yeah, she's like, "Do you yeah. want to come down and watch television with us?" And he's like, "No, I'm okay." And she's almost like, "Well, fine. I tried." Yeah, have it, have it your way. I think she says something to that. And extent. I'm just like, "God, you no know, wonder it, this kid kills himself." <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's not Mark exploding at his parents, yeah. you know. Um, but it is, you're right. It's, 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 she's passive aggressive about it. And then he is, again, that, that lack of communication that is so palpable between, you know, the kids of this particular generation and their parents. And then he goes through with it. And, you know, the actor does a really, really good job of just conveying like and how much in pain he is. Yeah. There, there's a, I, I got a lot out of his performance watching it as an adult. Uh, and, and mm-hmm. I'm looking at a, I'm looking at his room and he's got a computer and this is 1989, 1990. That was a big deal. Like having yeah. a computer, like, you know, he was, he was playing wing commander. I can yeah. almost guarantee it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. but the fact that he does feel lonely and he does feel like he, there's a lot going on that this is, this is the point that he kills himself and his yeah. parents missed Every single one of those. Mm-hmm. And the very unfortunate thing for them, in addition to what happened, is that they have a scapegoat. Yep. So they never have to blame themselves. And they never have to... I mean, you'd hope that they would at one point not blame themselves, that they would do the the necessary uh searching within like really having an honest look at what everything was but at least in the outset they have a scapegoat in in Harry because you know watching that scene i think it's written really really well mm-hmm. 
because he's still being a little bit sarcastic and silly. He isn't like, okay, go ahead and do it. But he also doesn't say no. And he admits that to himself. It's just, it's just ambiguous enough that everybody listening can take it and interpret it the way that they would like to. And the adults take it as he didn't stop Mm -hmm. him. And then they implicate him in it. And we actually do see like the narrative, which is it's as as much of a tool as Shep Shepard is. (laughs) He's right up there with William Atherton and Die Hard. You're just like that smarmy asshole newscaster. I like him in this movie. Because we have an adult narrative of what Harry is, and we have the actual narrative of it, and we see them at the same time through, like him, and and his news reports and stuff like that. So I I, I and and the, they get that, and all of a sudden they run with it because it's like, yeah, he drove a kid to suicide, even though that's totally not what he did. No, and 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 when when he gets on the next night and he 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 quits and then comes back and really starts talking about it. You know, and he's just like, you know, and he's trying to play it uh, with a joke. The, the one thing he says is that, you know, you, you, you crap yourself when you die. Uh-huh. And the only reason I laughed at that when I was a teenager and I kind of laughed at it today is uh, <laughs> it's really random memory. My mother never wanted to be put out uh, like at a dentist's office, like to get like oral surgery. She was afraid uh, if something went wrong, she would crap herself at the dentist. <laughs> you know, this, this is like this is like when everyone says go out with clean underwear. That actually felt somewhat realistic to me. But he's going through, he's like joking about it, but then he gets to the real heart of it. And he can only get to the real heart of it because it happened. Because yeah. he's seeing the reality of the situation, you know, and you know, we're we as a society are terrible about mental health. Uh, even mm-hmm. now, when people are paying more attention to it, we're still like 50 years behind where we should be. But in 1990, yeah. a kid killing himself, they would have definitely blamed the music. I mean, they put they put mm-hmm. what's his name from Judas Priest on trial for it. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, this was a thing where. Parents were looking for any excuse, and to a certain extent, they still are. Uh, I still hold that I'm fascinated that we're of the generation that our parents told us, don't believe everything you read on the Internet. (laughs) And now they believe literally everything they believe on the Internet. So it's just like, like, how did that was a weird turn. No one saw that. coming. Yes. Um, you know, yeah. this is like, don't ever give up your location. Don't post pictures of yourself. And they're, you know, like father-in-law posting pictures of himself on Facebook yeah, and exactly, coming to us exactly. asking, is this real? Um, <laughs> and you know, God bless him. I mean, I'm not, I'm not like saying he's bad or anything, but that is totally what adults did, especially at that time period. There was an entire book, like towards the later part of the eighties and early nineties about how, you know, cartoons are like the, the, the literal gateway to devil worship. And like all of the, all of the thing I had to watch, uh, when I was hanging out at the vacation Bible school of my cousins in 1990, of how heavy metal is the gateway to the, there was a lot of gateways (laughs) to the devil, uh, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. A few years later, it'd be Mortal Kombat. Um, was it Retro Blasting that did an episode about the Satanic Panic? Yes. 
Um, uh, yeah, I, and I, I listened to another one, and I think it was maybe Radio versus the Martians or something did 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 one or, or one of these other podcasts that it was it was really really fun to listen to because it was. Granted, a lot of that was you know early to the mid of the decade, but it was still just just crazy. And it this is the kind of one of the side effects of like you know just shifting blame and and sadly it would continue through the mm -hmm. decade because you had i mentioned that saga's high school was the site of a school shooting a couple of years ago um you know you would have columbine for instance at the end of the 90s and the the way blame oh, was thrown around for that you know so so the again this you know this this movie which is very heavy-handed like holds up because it gets so much so it's much heavy-handed, but also at the same time very nuanced in what it's talking about, mm -hmm. which I think that's a tough that's a tough needle to thread. In, in mm -hmm. all honesty, because you know when you look yeah. at when you when you look at the people that call in, like they're the girls that wrote in, and what have you know the thing they said happened didn't. They were just yeah, there was it was a fake. And yeah. um, but you know when that other kid writes in. And it's just like, I feel so bad for him because he's totally aware of who he is. You know, he knows he's yeah. gay. He, yeah. And he thought he found somebody else that he could have a relationship with. And not only does that guy humiliate him, they sexually assault him. Yeah. So it's not. And so he's not ashamed of who he is and he'll continue to be who he is. He is just it's it's the. It's the other side of that. It's that it's the fact that that it's the harassment. It's the that assault. You know, this is um, which was happening and and, and still happens. I mean, yes, I mean, it's just like one of those things where I, I've never seen a film and, and this isn't retrospective. I've never seen a film that got so much about its subject matter right while still being an entertaining and quotable movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and being over the top in places, um, to just kind of do a little bit of a lighter segue before the soundtrack. So one of the songs they play is, uh, it's a, it is a cover of the MC5's Kick Out the Jams, mm -hmm. um, as sung by Bad Brains and Henry Rollins. And this is the scene where they're all dancing around. This is where Paige puts her stuff in the microwave. Um, Samantha Mathis is doing that thing where she's wearing a very, very long shirt and, you know, maybe shorts that are covered up by that. So, you know, it's just, anyway, um, how they're at the school parking lot and these guys are running around with this <laughs> giant foam penis. How does one procure you know, same, a giant penis like this thought. and and where and where do you store such a penis like, like, just... like did they did they just make that in shop class in secret <laughs> i mean it's, just, it's funny because the the sexual humor of the movie is is pretty apparent i mean he pretends he's like i said he several times mark pretends he's masturbating masturbating um, and but yeah when they're when they're doing the little montage of everybody uh it is really cool to watch how it goes from like two cars on the school mm -hmm. football field to it becoming bigger and bigger and bigger because apparently that's where the signal is strongest 
Yeah, because the first car is uh, is Metalhead yeah. guy, and then the second car is is um, Nora's friend and her boyfriend, who is played by the way by Ahmet Zappa. Who, who looks um, like every guy from that era, by the way. I, I just yeah, want to say, yeah. just like it's like sometimes when I see guys with that hairstyle, I'm like, oh yeah, that was a thing, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Yeah, he 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 would have been on studs. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you're right. You know, by the end of the movie, everybody's there, and it, it's just like that's how community is formed. <laughs> I know. I mean, the, the thing is, is that, you know, as funny as, as everything is, I mean, this film could not be made today. Um, one, no. phones are like he, he's basically and I don't know how he figured out how to do this again. He probably went to the library, but he's basically gone to one of his neighbor's houses and hooked up a phone line to their phone, like a like a a cordless phone, which, by the way, y'all used to be a big deal. Mm-hmm. I was 17 before we got our first cordless phone. Um, and then you could talk anywhere in the house. Uh, no. But uh, he he's hooked up one of those to his neighbor's house and the phone he has. I don't know how he charges it. We're not supposed to think about that, but I don't know how he keeps yeah. it charged. But that, so when they trace the phone line, cause they think this is your gotcha moment and some poor couple gets the cops raiding their house, which is kind of funny, but mm-hmm. to the ham radio to, you know, boosting like a pirate radio signal, which apparently was a thing in England in the sixties, people would go like off the coast. Uh, yeah. and there's a whole movie about, about that. that with Philip Seymour Hoffman in it, if I'm correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think so. Yeah. But like, none of that is like now he would just have a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is what's interesting. Um, so there's a movie that came out a couple of years ago called Eighth Grade, and and I was it, and I I had heard really good things about it. It was in my queue, so I watched it the other night, and it it is it is painfully awkward um, about this girl who is in eighth grade. She's not very popular, and she's just incredibly awkward and trying. But she she's constantly making YouTube videos that are you know self affirming or or makeup tutorials and stuff, and like nobody watches them. And then she signs off at the end. It's said, but it, it and it, it is not it is not a relation to this movie. But it's almost like the everybody in the generation that's in high school now, they don't have to steal the air, as he said, because they have the air. They can. You're right. They can all have podcasts. They can all have YouTube channels. They could, if they want to, go old old school. In a sense, they can blog. They have the means. But the conundrum is now, do they have the audience? If they're the voice crying out in the wilderness, you know, in this case, Harry was something unique and new, you know, something like nobody was saying this. There's like a million of them saying this now over so many various media. And is anybody actually listening? So that so it's almost like the opposite is, has come to pass. Uh, in a there sense, was the problem kind of is, a, it slipped on his oh, head. I'm sorry. I did, I, no, go ahead. There go ahead. was kind of a modern version of it back in 2012, which I can we call that modern anymore? Uh, called Rebel yeah. Radio. It was a Disney film uh, hmm. where this uh, Debbie Ryan, who was on uh, Jesse and 
I think she was on The Sweet Life? Or am I thinking of somebody else? Yeah, I think she was on The Sweet Life with Zack and Cody. I know way too much about Disney stuff. It's not my fault. It's my <clears throat> wife's fault. Uh, but she was basically a mystery DJ at her high school radio station mm. and was, like, speaking truth to power, and the principal was trying to figure out who she was. And I'm like, oh, this is like, you know, pump up the volume, except with no swearing, and at no point do the high school kids grab a giant foam penis and start running through <laughs> the parking lot. <laughs> I'm shocked that they have not done this as a plot on uh, Riverdale at this point, but. <laughs> but yeah, that 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 that, that foam penis is quite the conundrum, isn't it? <laughs> it's just like, well, like you're not supposed to think about it, but we're adults, and this is a podcast, and we're really looking yeah. at the grain this movie at a granular level. And yeah. It's just like, well, how? Like, how do you get a mold for that? Yeah, like the poor prop master or the PA who had to put that thing together or had to buy that thing. You know, you imagine making that, that phone call. You John can't even. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the big winner? Mikey's the big winner. Um, so let's let's um. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the soundtrack. So the soundtrack album, like I said, is one of those albums that you really can't come by unless you, I mean, you no, know, you can come by, you can find it on cassette and on CD. Um, and at a reasonable used price, you know, it's not, it's been out of print for years, but you know, there are copies floating around on Amazon and eBay. And I'm sure that if you dove into a used CD bin at a, uh, record store or wherever, um, or a goodwill, you might be able to find it, but, it can't it can't be it's it's not anything that's been released for streaming um and it has a the the late 80s and especially the 90s were full of soundtracks like this where you where it became the a way that you kind of got your first taste of some of these bands singles is singles in the crow are probably oh, yeah. the two most notable for this as far as alternative rock is concerned uh there are a few others that are um that we could say this way about like rap uh but you know this has this is a couple of years before singles so it does not have the um oh it has a, uh, they do use a Soundgarden song yeah that that was the thing in when, the, in when the it was movie. going through his tapes and i saw Soundgarden, i'm like this is this is how much yeah. i don't know about music i'm like when did they form? And it's just like, nope, they've been around since like, I think it was like either the early eighties or the late seventies. Yeah. They were around for, for, for a long time prior to that. There's a Soundgarden song or two used in, um, in the background of say anything, which is around this time as well. But we have, uh, we have the Pixies. We have Sonic Youth. Um, the Cowboy Junkies covering a Robert Johnson song. Uh, and they, of course, would, would, their biggest, uh, their biggest hit, or at least the song I always recognize the Cowboy Junkies for, is for their cover of, uh, Sweet Jane, um, which is so good. Um, but Concrete Blonde, of course, as you mentioned, they cover the letter Cohen song, Everybody Knows, and that's the song that he kicks his broadcast off with every night, the Leonard Cohen version. They don't, they use the Concrete Blonde version at the very end when he's, on the air in the jeep yeah it's the big triumphant moment of the film which if you listen to that version of everybody knows that is a very forced uh viewpoint of that song because it's a very down song it's Mm -hmm. this is a down song 
Uh, yeah. yeah. And from that article you sent me, they didn't want to use the Leonard Cohen version. And I cannot imagine mm-hmm. this movie beginning any other way. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And there's a couple of now. So, so there's a bunch of stuff that's on the album, and there's a bunch of songs that are not on the album. Um, and there are two Leonard Cohen songs, that one, and then "If It Be Your Will," which is what he plays um, right before he goes on the air after Malcolm has killed himself. Um, and he's got this moment where he lights a candle and a cigarette, of course, and he just he sits there and he listens to the listens to the song, and then he goes on the air. And uh, Ivan. Uh, or Yvonne Neville, why, well, why Can't I Fall in Love, which he plays, which is the song that he and Nora literally dance to, Topolist. Um Let's see, The Pixies, I mentioned Bad Brains and Harry Rollins, I mentioned the, the song Freedom of Speech by Above the Law, which I heard and I was like, it sounds almost Public Enemy-esque. And then uh, some stuff that's not on the album that's worth uh, seeing is the Ice-T song, Girls L-G-B-N-A-F. Which stands for "Let's get buck naked and fuck," and it's and and what what has been wonderful is that with the exception of the Beastie Boys B side Lost Track scenario, um, like I was saying toward the beginning of this episode, um, people have gone to like Spotify and assembled it as a playlist that's public and called it like Pump Up the Volume soundtrack, so you can listen to all these songs. Um, without having to track down the CD. Um, one of my favorites is the Descendants song, Der Wiener Schnitzel. <laughs> Welcome to, uh, can I take, can I take your order? Yeah, I want... You want Bill Sperm with that? Which is, is very, very, very on point for that. Now, the, the rabbit hole I fell down with the, with the soundtrack is... This is a year before Nevermind mm-hmm. blows a giant hole into popular music in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a conversation years ago with a friend of mine who's sadly no longer with us. And he said, and we were talking in like 2002, he goes, we have not had another Nirvana come in and completely change the landscape of music. And I, I agreed with him, and I, and I still, to a certain extent, agree with him. But it is amazing how much of a time capsule this movie is. Because a year later, if um, Nirvana wasn't on the soundtrack, I would have been shocked. <laughs> like, yeah. absolutely shocked. Uh, but it made me think that music was creeping along the edge and how as much as I look at the dress and the the wardrobe of this movie, the only thing that really separates it from my own personal experience is flannel. Uh, Flannel Mm -hmm. really made a comeback (laughs) in the early nineties. Seriously, watch like old episodes of Blossom and see how many times Joey Lawrence is in ripped jeans and a flannel shirt tied around his waist. I may have done that a lot when I was a senior and and, and, and into my my early, my late teens. Tom Tom glances to his left. His DVD set of my so-called life sits on the shelf facing him. And that was the other thing (laughs) that I thought uh, just really quick and then I'll get out of this tangent. This is like the older, like Nora's the older sister of Claire Danes' character from My So-Called Life. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, the funny things is that, and 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 just to to dovetail to that, or to to piggyback onto that, you can tell it's getting late. I'm I'm mixing up my metaphors. I don't know. Um, the the shows that were realistic in this vein became cult hits as well. They did not succeed in the way that, say, Beverly Hills yeah. 90210, which was on the air when this came out, or, or was it, yeah, I think it was just about to head into its second season when this came out um, a, uh, on, uh, in the movies. The the pop sheen of that, it's that, that show lasted for 10 years. This show lasted probably about five or six years longer than it probably needed to, but it lasted for 10 years. And then as you got into the late part of the 90s, you would have um, Dawson's Creek and all this, the what, what we would have then called the WB shows and stuff like that. And even, like I said last episode, this is a couple, this is about a year before the real world starts, and that show would morph as the decade went on. It, it, it was never realistic, realistic, but it felt more realistic in its beginning, and then it became kind of what it ended up becoming. But, but yeah, the, the idea that you could do a serious, um, a serious show or a serious movie about teenagers that felt very real to them never took hold beyond like a niche audience, at least when it was first run. And then when it like both, both of those shows, the, the both pump of the volume, my so-called life, like they both got second lives in cable yeah. and in in reruns and in VHS and it's stuff like that. So it's just kind of interesting of how these, you know, of of how these things uh, how these things go. Um, but yeah, the the soundtrack is very it mm-hmm. is perfect in that it reflects Mark's character. It's kind of all over the place. Um, yeah. You know, some of it's kind of broad and and funny. Some of it's, you know, some of it's Leonard Cohen. Uh, and mm-hmm. I'd like to just point out for a quick second that it's nice to hear Leonard Cohen music in a movie. Uh, <laughs> not have two superheroes having sex. Uh, the <sighs> fact that everybody knows kicks off Justice League. <laughs> like a really dour version of that song. And that's a dour mm. song. So I, oh, it I'm is. making a statement it is. there. But the fact that... Like the last time I watched Justice League, which was the night before I watched this again because it was just on and I was cleaning the kitchen. I watch, I make terrible viewing choices when I'm cleaning the kitchen, by the way, because uh, I want something familiar that I don't have to really pay attention to. Yeah. And Justice League was on and it starts with that version of Leonard Cohen. And I'm like, yeah, this was a Zach scene. This was definitely a Zach scene. So, uh, you know, I just, it's just like, can we, can, can we remember Leonard Cohen for good things? Like, pump up the volume? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is actually the first time I'd ever heard a Leonard Cohen song. Um, incidentally, I didn't hear Leonard Cohen's version of Hallelujah for years. I was always familiar with the Jeff Buckley version of it. <laughs> um, because, because I think Amanda had that CD. Um, well, still does, but, you know, um, it's too, so I, I pointed out the original uh, scenario I mentioned a couple of times. Um, there are a couple of um, songs. There is a song by an artist called Richard Hell, who I've never heard of. It's called Love Comes in Spurts. And I, it is such the, it is, I think, played around one of his epic masturbation yeah. things or whatever. 
it's such a perfect moment for that song for that moment. And um, it's actually a pretty catchy song when you listen to it. it, it it's very just yeah. And then um, Dad, I'm in jail by Was Not Was, who the year prior to this had the one hit wonder of Walk the Dinosaur. Yes. <laughs> Same group. I was like, wait, that's what that was. Hey, Dad. I, and you can kind of, when I was listening to the song all the way through, I was like, I can hear bits and pieces of the type of rhythm and bass line and stuff that they would use in the other in the other song. I was like, I can kind of hear Walk the Dinosaur. Open the door. These guys as well. Get so, on the floor. Get on the floor. Everybody walk the dinosaur. Uh, yeah. We're not going to go out on that. No, 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 no. I refuse to end this episode on Walk the Dinosaur. Um, I guess, like... Uh, a couple a couple questions so like um we've talked a little bit about what this predicted and we talked a little bit about like where we are now and how this might not have might not necessarily work these days um if it did it would have to be in a different medium and you could have a i think you could have the dynamic um between the parents and the kids but i think you would have to further develop the adult characters because there are adults who are a little more either helicoptery or they are a little more in tune with what their what their kids what's going on with their kids, um, but uh, there, Slater was interviewed in Variety last June and he said I think it'd be fun to re-examine like what the heck happened to Mark Hunter. Where is the kid that had the pirate radio station? Um, he said, but right now it might be, who cares, because everybody's got a podcast. And that was like the original underground podcast before any of this stuff was going on. So I so I asked, where are we now? We kind of talked about that. I'm just kind of speculating, like, what did happen to this kid? Did He probably got, I don't know, maybe he got, I wonder if he got a slap on the wrist. Or, um, yeah. Well, let's be fair. It's a very affluent school that he goes to. Uh, his, oh, yeah. his dad is the superintendent. Um, as you said, they call him the commissioner. It's pretty much the superintendent. Yeah. That's a, that's a pretty, uh, cushy gig. Uh, I'm, I'm sure it pays very well. Um, especially if like that movie Hugh Jackman recently did for HBO has, uh, any... Oh yeah. I saw the, uh, bad education. I think which I, I've been meaning to ask you about, but now is not the time for that. Uh, mm-hmm. but the, um, the, I was thinking about that after they got arrested. I'm like, okay, they both got bailed out that night. Uh, her, oh, yeah. his dad went from firing the, um, the principal, uh, which it's, it's like, that's the only part of this film that's not fully baked was that subplot. Uh, because it's kind of interesting on its own of this like corruption at a school. Uh, but mm-hmm. yeah, he, his son got arrested. He watched his son get arrested he went home, he called a lawyer, and they got him bailed out. Nora's parents got her bailed out. And if they got anything, they would have, if they got a good enough lawyer, I really put some thought into this. If they got a good enough lawyer, they were able to avoid all of the heavy parts of the the, the, the federal angle of it. Because the federal angle is like they could have argued away the conspiracy, the, the, the basically accusing him of murder. Uh, yeah. They could have argued that pretty easily. It's, it's the stealing the airways that is probably the more thing. But it was probably more of a slap on the wrist. You're not allowed to have any of this equipment. Uh, and he finished out high school in another town, uh, and 
probably dropped out of college about halfway through. And because uh, he really wanted to be on the the, the, the radio in the college and they wouldn't. Like. <laughs> no, I, 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 I don't know what he would be like as an adult. Like, would he be like the, the creepy guy? Not creepy as in like stalkery, but he would he be like the weird guy that kind of lives alone or did he kind of pull out of that skid? <laughs> I, you know, I wonder if he, um, I agree with you that, that criminal prosecution slap on the wrist probation community service, possibly, you know, I say, and, and Nora, especially like, you know, um, maybe a civil lawsuit from Malcolm's parents, that would have been settled out of court. Don't know if his father kept his job. Yeah, that, that's the other thing. It's like, <laughs> um, don't know that relationship. I can see completely imploding. He's he's old enough to, if he drops out of college, it's to work with something involving the internet. And I could see him. Now I'm not gonna say he's like Mark fucking Zuckerberg or something, but I can see him being. Um, like, uh, somebody who started something akin to what he had or, or, or whatever that like, you know, he might not have gotten rich or whatever, but he was, he was comfortable enough where he found his voice that way. I don't know. That's the more optimistic thing. Um, or that he tells his parents to fuck off. He escapes. And then the, the next scene is the, is Nora walking up to him on a beach in Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see, I look at this and I think the only, the only aspirational aspect of it is that like, I think we kind of all like at some level be like, Oh, I wish I had the cojones to be Mark, <laughs> you know, to be, to, to, to like, cause I was, I was the type who was, you know, not painfully shy. I was kind of like, you. Yeah, I seem to get along with everybody, but there was a, I did, I was socially awkward, like very much. And and, you know, really did want to write, you know, <laughs> and and so there was that that part of that I totally identified with. Um, I don't think I would have ever been able to pull something like this off logistically <laughs> where I was. No, but even in spirit, like I, I would have been found out like right away. Do you think you would have ever, you know, did, did you did you ever identify with him on any level um, or did you want to be able to pull that upward, off? Um like I had friends, so I'm I'm like the worst worst example of all of this is because uh, <laughs> I actually have positive memories about high school. Uh, yeah, so do I. And when I went to my reunion, I was actually kind of looking forward to seeing people. It was more about seeing my old friends and and reconnecting with people than actually like we didn't have like a tour of the school or anything like that. Or if they did, I didn't go to it. Uh, I was mad that I had to pay to get into the thing. Uh, and, of course, the weird thing was it was at a casino mm. that they built in Bethlehem. Um, and, and, you know, for somebody who grew up on action films of people going home and somebody's opened up like a casino and it's like a drag on the town and they have to fight somebody. I was wondering, am I going to have to get like in an epic battle at some point? During this whole thing? Uh, no, it just turns out we walked through the casino and went to a room that looked like every other hotel ballroom uh, you've ever seen. So uh, it was it, – but the awkwardness, I remember feeling that. I remember 
Like when he went up and said hi to Paige, I would have never done that. Um, and and it's not like I didn't well, date. It's just I just wasn't the kind of like, hey, how you doing, baby, type of guy. But but the, the, I love that scene because like he would have never done it either. He's totally like taking a huge chance at that moment, and it's the most awkward high. You know, like he she catches he he's staring yeah. at her. It, which is totally natural. The the actress who played Paige Woodward is a very attractive, you know, g- girl. So he's kind of, and she catches him looking at her. And so he kind of sheepishly went and he just walks by and he says hi. And so it's a really, like I said, we talked about how much they get right. It is, that is the type of moment they get completely right. And, uh, yeah, um, I, I would have been able to talk to somebody. No, actually, no, because there was a girl in high school who I had a major crush on and I could never actually bring myself to talk to her. So I can well, identify it's with funny that. funny because all of the, the girls that I thought were really attractive, I would end up having conversations with, and it was usually mm. because of play practice or choir. Uh, there was this one really, really pretty, pretty girl that I ended up actually kind of, we would end up like flirting with each other towards the end of play of uh, the, the play we were in. And it was all like really like nonchalant at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just, my problem was I lived way too much in my own head. And, mm-hmm. and that come, there, there's a lot of reasons for that, that I'm not going to get into. Cause again, this is not the forum for that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, I I was very I wasn't self-centered as in I thought everything was about me but I didn't climb out of my own skull enough to to go beyond my comfort zone at any point in high school. Um the several times I tried to ask girls out it was like I, FEMA had to come in and clean up afterwards. Um and it's not like it was humiliating but only on like that. Not it wasn't publicly humiliating. <laughs> Let me put it to you that way. Uh, but I think it's like I think everybody who feels awkward wants to be cool. And and this is the thing that that I really discovered about in watching my high school friends on Facebook is that nobody had it figured out. Nobody yeah. was happy. I had a good friend of mine tell me that she had this like rivalry with another person I was friendly with because her piano teacher pitted them against each other. And I'm like, what the fuck dynamic is that? <laughs> like, like I don't like you because, and, and like, and, and it's one of those things where it proves that adults don't realize how easy it is to screw kids up. Like, like, like all these parents, all these helicopter parents are worried. Am I doing this right? And then they do stuff like that. <laughs> this is some joy luck club bullshit right there. I mean, it's just, so it's just, it's, Oh my God. So, to 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 end the answer because I've been rambling because it is late. Uh, yeah, I, I think that I liked that Mark had kind of a secret identity. I liked mm-hmm. that Mark, uh, as an adult, I liked that Mark wasn't the kid from um, uh, American Beauty that was like filming his name. Oh yeah. You know, he wasn't that awkward. In fact, he is mm-hmm. probably the most innocent, awkward male 
in any film ever <laughs> in terms of the yeah. things that he does. Uh, but no, I, I think it was that I would have liked to, I, I think there was also a part of me that wanted to be that aware of the world around him. Um, unfortunately, I'm glad, uh, fortunately, I guess I should say, I'm glad I wasn't because I would have been miserable sooner. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a great way to put it too. Um, and I think, I think the movie still can speak to the anonymity that one can feel mm -hmm. and how that also comes along with the loneliness that you can feel. And, and just, again, just, and how you don't expect that people you think aren't going through it are going through it. You know, just, just you don't expect to have that much in common with people you don't think you have anything in common with. And and then that was one of the real strengths of, of this film. Um, and uh, I, it, it's a time capsule. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, it holds up infinitely better than a number of other movies from the, from the same period. Um, so... I would, I, it was one that I would recommend and, and would say track it down, buy the Blu-ray. I'm sure somebody has uploaded it to YouTube at some point or another, you know, um, if you can find it in full. But, uh, but yeah, and, and hopefully one day they'll iron out the rights and they'll get it streaming because it is really worth it. You know, you call it a, you call it a time capsule. Even the DVD that I bought because I bought it on Amazon on DVD. Uh, only mm. five left, Mike. Get it now. Uh, and, I look on the back and it has special features, theatrical trailer, and you could choose to either watch it widescreen or full screen. And I remember back in like the early 2000s, I always thought those were those bullshit special features ever. Those aren't special features. Okay. <laughs> that, that, that just should come with the movie. That shouldn't be special. Yeah. You know, I want yeah. the behind the scenes. You know, or the, the, like, I remember even on the, like, the Crow videotape, it's like, stay tuned after the movie for Brandon Lee's last interview. Uh, so. Yeah. <sighs> All right. Well, <laughs> so, um, before I let you go, and before I go, uh, to a trailer, and then I'm going to come back with, uh, some feedback to close, close this out, uh, tell everybody where they can find uh, it. You. I, years ago, I, I did, one of the few smart things I've ever done in podcasting, and I put everything on one site. Uh, so you can go to FortressOfBailey2.com, celebrating its 13th year on the Internet. Um, yeah, started that in 2008, and recently I had to pay for the, the yearly thing. Uh, and now it's not even the same company. Uh, Lunar Pages got bought out by Host Papa. And when I saw the name Host Papa, mm. I went, oh, somebody wanted to do GoDaddy, but... Uh, Decided this is this is like the 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 uh, you know the, the the McDowell's to the McDonald's so to speak. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, there you can find uh, from Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. You can find the Overlooked Dark Knight. Uh, Views from the Long Box is still kicking around. I got a, I got two new shows on the network. One's called Views On, where I talk about things other than comic books. And uh, Tom here was nice enough to be on the first episode with me. I also have a new show called mm -hmm. the Superman and Lowest tapes, which I do with my friends, Bethany and Allison, uh, who I know through dragon con. And we are talking, and this is really weird for me. We are talking about the new CW show, Superman and Lois. 
And I have never followed something so new before, and it's kind of frightening. I feel like I usually talk about old stuff because that's safe. Uh, but no, uh, so, uh, that's coming out, uh, usually on Sundays now. Uh, so, and all of that is available on Apple Podcasts, and all of that is also available on Spotify. So, right. uh, cool. you know, when you're looking for your pump up the volume mix, you know, maybe look up one of my shows. Yeah, definitely do that. No, I've, I, well, I've guessed it on a couple of the shows, but regular rotation. And um, and they're all they're all excellent. So you set the bar, sir. Um, Don't tell me that. <laughs> and uh, I will be back in just a moment with some feedback. So stick around. Remember, everybody, eat your cereal with a fork. Excellent. <laughs> we'll be right back. Everyone, listen up! It's not over yet. It's just the beginning. But it's up to you. I'm calling for every kid to seize the air. Steal it. It belongs to you. Speak out. They can't stop you. Find your voice and use it. Keep this thing going. Pick a name. Go on the air. It's your life. Take charge of it. Do it. Try it. Try anything. Spill your guts out. Say shit and fuck a million times if you want to. But you decide. Just fill the air. Steal it. Keep the air alive! Behind you all the way, Harry! You talk to me, man. You really talk to me. You're the one, man! I believe in you, Harry. Stay tough, man. You did great. Get it, man. We believe in you, Harry. Harry! With me, man. We're can anyone out there hear me? Sick of silence, let it out. This is Katie. Ethan from LA. I'm 16, but I'm not sweet. Are you if running the streets? Future, call the real runaway hotline. KCAT Los Gatos, California. This is. I am. Are you? This is no protection. I'm from New Jersey. Turn on the truth. Hey, Mike. Shaq, what? What are you doing in my house? I, I had a key made, but that's not important. Anyway, I just had a great idea for a trailer for that cute little network you do. The, the Fortress of Bailey Toot Podcasting Network? Yeah, that's the one. It's adorable. I love it. I mean, look at you. Like, with the network and stuff. Thanks. I, I, I think. Anyway, you know how people sometimes advertise something by, like, being extreme and suggesting that you just might die if you don't buy, like, a particular product or something? Yeah, I, I believe those people are called sadists. Sadist, that's one way you could say it, or guy with a marketing degree, kind of the same thing. Anyway, we could record a promo where I ask you something like, Mike, do you know who didn't listen to the Fortress of Bailey 2 Podcasting Network? Who? Gwen Stacy. Really? You know who else didn't listen to it? Who? Thomas and Martha Wayne. The Waynes. And Uncle Ben. Not the Rice. Uncle Ben. 
and the entire planet of Krypton, except those that survived. What about Bucky or Jason Todd? Ooh, that's genius. Okay, we'll say they didn't listen, and then Superboy Prime punched a wall, and then they listened, and they were brought back to life. I guess we could also say that Aunt May subscribes and unsubscribes all the time. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Now you're catching on. I'm not doing that, Shag. I'm not going to suggest that people will die if they don't listen to the Fortress of Bailey-Tude podcasting network, which hosts such shows as From Crisis to Crisis, Overlook Dark Knight, Views from the Long Box, It All Comes Back to Superman, and Bailey's Batman Podcast, and that they can find the network at www.fortressofbailey2.com. Are you sure? I mean, I do have, like, a marketing degree and stuff. I'm, I'm pretty smart. No. Can I at least be in the trailer? Yes. The Fortress of Baileytude Podcasting Network. The repository of podcasts produced and hosted or co-hosted by Michael Bailey. Head on over to www.fortressofbailey2.com to download the shows directly. You can also find a master feed of all shows by searching for Fortress of Baileytude Podcasting Network on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher, or you can subscribe to the shows individually. The Fortress of Baileytude Podcasting Network does not suggest that not listening to any of these shows will prove fatal, nor does it endorse surreptitiously making a key to a friend's house for the purposes of busting in and suggesting ideas for podcast trailers. Music in this trailer by Kevin McLeod. And once again, I am back, and I would still like to thank Mike for coming on. That was such a great conversation. I had a lot of fun, and I hope you guys enjoyed what we were talking about. Before I go, though, I do have some feedback. Um, First up, I have a Facebook comment uh, from Gene Hendricks, and and both of these pieces of feedback that I have are about the Generation X episode that I did last month. Gene says, It's weird. You read off the dates for Generation X, and I'm squarely in there, but I've never felt like a part of that. Maybe it's like you said, the appearance was it was made up of Q Principal Strickland impression slackers, and I never saw myself that way. Yeah, I always kind of felt the same way, and it seemed like we fit, fell victim to labeling and generalization. I'm sure that there are a number of people who would agree with you on that as well. Yeah, Gene, I think it, it's, it's interesting. The generalization is... Um, well, you know, general their generalizations so that that they they never truly fit everybody's experience. But I think we all fell victim to that in some way or another. And and whether or not you wanted to live up to that label is I don't know. It's it's it that that would be an interesting thing to explore just in general. Like who took a label and said, you know, I want to aspire to that as opposed to seeing it as a pejorative. So, but thank you for thank you for commenting. I also got an email from Professor Allen 
of the Relatively Geeky Network. And he writes in about the same episode. He says, Tom, love the Generation X episode. I am the on the oldest edge of Generation X and very proud of it. Mostly proud to not be a baby boomer, truth be told. <laughs> On Copeland, I love so many of his novels, Generation X, of course, but also Microsurfs, Hey Nostradamus, and Girlfriend in a Coma. To come out of that email for a second, Girlfriend in a Coma was the first of his, I think I read. And Hey Nostradamus, I think, was actually the last one I read, believe it or not. Uh, I might actually go back and reread Girlfriend in a Coma. I remember it being a really good, like, apocalyptic science fiction type of novel um, from the very late 90s. Anyway, back into Alan's email. Life After God was very impactful on me, and I think that Miss Wyoming is wildly underrated. I may have read The Gum Thief, but I don't have a clear recollection of that. I find it interesting that Copeland broke away from writing fiction to incorporate the visual arts into his expressive life. I hope that in a decade or so we get an in-depth documentary about him. I think a documentary about Copeland, I think a documentary about his influence, um, and this is me talking here, uh, and, and the generation itself would be really, really interesting. We've had like a billion baby boomers, sixties generation documentaries. I don't know how many times we can repackage Woodstock to be completely honest with you, but to see this in, in a, in an in-depth way that isn't just sort of a pop culture clip show of the Isle of the nineties variety would be really, really fascinating. Anyway, back into Alan's email again. We talk about age demographics and generations in marketing class, and I was glad that you got to marketing toward the end of the episode. From that perspective, the defining characteristic of Gen X is the size of the cohort. There aren't very many of us. There were tons of boomers, and most of them were still are still around, and there are tons of millennials. But Gen X is quite a bit smaller than either, as by 1964, most silent generation folk were done having kids, while most boomers were too young to start families. Many of us grew up in an era of schools being closed or consolidated, as an example. That's a really interesting thing to say, Alan. And yeah, I was just actually talking to a coworker about this recently. You know, there, we are such a small generation in general. Um, so that is uh, that is something of, of concern there, and the boom and the millennials were often referred to as echo boomers too, which I think is also uh, telling. Okay, last time back into Alan's email. Any analysis of the impact of Gen X, whether culturally, politically, socially, economically, etc., has to recognize the fact that there were simply few of us to make such an impact. Marketers basically skipped over us, and really still do. Focusing their efforts on both boomers and millennials. More bang for the marketing buck. Not that I'm bitter. Loving the show. The Cold War episodes have been enjoyable as well. Professor Allen. Thank you again, Alan. And, and if anybody else has any thoughts on the Generation X episode, um, it, it, uh, not to toot my own horn, it's one I'm very proud of. I really enjoyed researching that. There was more that I could have done with it in the space that I had. It was just it, like I had to stop myself from going further down the rabbit hole and reading more stuff and looking at more stuff because there still is a lot of stuff out there that I left untouched. But um, I, I had a blast researching it. 
and um, really, really enjoyed it. So if you have any thoughts on it or you have any thoughts on this episode, I loved doing this episode. It was just, this is one of my favorite movies and it was just, uh, it was really, really fun to do. So if you have any thoughts on that, please send me feedback. I love hearing, uh, hearing from you, but that will do it. I'll be back in a month with another episode and until then be sure to check out the show notes on the blog. Um, I'll have a link to Spotify playlists that contain the music from pump up the volume as well as some other extras. Feel free to write in as well. I love seeing people's comments and reading emails. And as always, thanks for listening and take care. Everybody knows that's the way it goes. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, which is produced by me, Tom Panneries. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get noticed by other people. Feedback via email can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. For show notes and essays and other things random in the world of popular culture, visit popcultureaffidavit.com. You can also follow this show on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit and on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thanks for listening, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness.